Hello, and welcome to the Stories That Change Us, a Me Us You production. I'm Sarah French. I'm Mitch Roshannon. And I'm Ayla Narice. Today we'll be exploring just a few of the ways that stories impact our lives. So if you're interested in how stories become books and how diversity works in publishing, the wonders of narrative gaming and the dangers it faces today, or an interview with a best-selling author on why we keep seeing Greek myths, stick around. All of that and more is just an instrumental breakaway. All right, I think we got it. Yeah, we just got it. So as you just heard, this episode is all about story. So what better way to start than to discuss the stories that have changed us? Stuck to us like a good rib dinner or mushroom barbecue for all you vegans out there. So what are the stories that changed us? Uh, We've been asking people this question all week for a later segment in the podcast, and I think I've formulated my answer. If someone asked me specifically, what is your favorite story? I'd have to say The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. And not like the one that's Disneyfied or the one that he like fixed later because people told me it's too depressing, but the one where like she sees her love, decides that she can't kill him, and leaps into the ocean and becomes seafoam and never exists ever again. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> I think my answer always changes from day to day. So I have like a list of stories that I can say changed, changed me, not us. There's not a specific story. Oh, I have so many. I... Grew up on Harry Potter, like I think a lot of us did. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's on my list too. I think that that community that arose around those books, not just the books themselves, like really formed this generation. I'm one of the the writing majors on this campus that has never uh, experienced the books of Harry Potter, though I suppose I could say that I've been influenced somewhat by the movies. Uh, The movies are a story as well. Maybe not exactly the same story. (laughs) For me... Funny enough, the first story I think of is the the narrative arc surrounding Bonnie McFarlane in the first Red Dead Redemption video game by Rockstar Games. She's this really cool kind of like cowboy, cowgirl woman running her own farm as her aged father kind of gets too old to do it himself. And throughout this arc, just all of this stuff happens to her over and over again. Like the, the, the barn is burned down by, oh my god, I forget what they're called, like cattle... Stealers. What do you call them? A a group of, like, bandits that steal cows uh, for a living come in and take a bunch of her her herd and then eventually take her. All the while, she's this incredibly strong woman trying to make it in uh, the Wild West. And it's a heartbreaking story, but it's one that has uh, really stuck with me. Yeah, that's neat. Now I'm sad. (laughs) It is. It's very sad. A couple of these that I've written down for this are incredibly sad stories. I mean, I have that too. I know, like, I wrote down uh, The Bridge to Terabithia because I think that was the first book that I, like, stayed up past my bedtime reading and, like, till, like, three in the morning and just, like, sat in my bed at three in the morning, like, sobbing. Um, I was, like, probably nine or ten and I was like, this is sad. Why are books sad? Why can't it have a happy ending? Because that's, like, what you get when your kid is, like, the cushy little happy endings. Mm -hmm. Although, not always. <laughs> I know. Um, I went through a phase where I read anything that probably should have come with a trigger warning from middle schoolers. So I read a lot of Laurie Halls Anderson, like, Speak and Winter Girls. And yeah. That's not a happy story by any stretch of the imagination. But I loved it. Um, and, like, I also read Stolen, which is by Lucy Christopher. And I know that includes, like, Kidnap and Stockholm Syndrome. But I like the complexity of all of these situations and how nothing was laid down and had a happy ending. 
But then at the same time, I would read a fairy tale and be happy with that tale. Well, I know, like, when I was going through, because we all have lists in front of us, because we have a lot of stories we like. We're English majors, after all. The, the theme, I think, that I saw through mine is, like, main characters or characters who are sort of exiled from main community or who are really different and who like strike out on their own and do really well and like change the world or something which is everything from like the Lorax to like Jane Goodall's book Through a Window uh, which is about her 30 years with the chimpanzees in Gombe in Tanzania I don't know and that's always like sort of spoke to me because I'm like the weird odd one out usually (laughs) I'd be remiss if I didn't say the name Barbara Kingsolver realistically, the Poisonwood Bible was the first novel that I read that I didn't hate. And I have since then gone on to buy almost every novel, short story, and essay collection she has ever written. I have a lot more books to yeah, go. So I was going to say... Um, Do we want to like, take turns yelling books? I'm thinking... Um, Alice I Have Been by Melanie Benjamin. The Cry of the Ice Mark by Stuart Hill. Uh, Such Such Were the Joys by George Orwell. The Thirteenth Tale by Diane Satterfeld. Cassandra Clare's The Mortal Instruments. <laughs> Essays from the Nick of Time by Mark Sluka. The Hogfather by Terry Pratchett. The Enchanted Forest Chronicles by Patricia C. Reed. Vive Us to Those Who Have Failed by Martina Spada. A Tuck Everlasting by Natalie Babbitt. Uh, the Love Song of J.L. for Proofrock by T.S. Eliot. Stardust by Neil Gaiman. The Time Machine by... H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells. <laughs> Uh, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, I guess. We just listed off a ton of books, but I was just thinking about there's one book that I read when I was in middle school that really stuck with me, which is Every Day by David Levithan. Uh, and that was the first book that I had ever read that had a character who was non-binary, and I didn't even know what that was. So that was like a really cool moment for me because that was the first time I saw someone who was reflected like in a part of the LGBT community that even they don't talk about. Uh, that was a main character in a book, um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, and you're going to talk about more about diversity. Yes. In, in the next segment. When we talk about stories, we're most often talking about books, whether it's our favorite novel, a fairy tale that was turned into a book, or old tomes of history. When we talked with people about their favorite stories, which you'll hear about a little later on, we got a running theme throughout a lot of answers. People like seeing themselves represented in books. So we wanted to take a closer look at diversity and go straight to the source, which is book publishing. A study done in 2015 by Jason Lowe and Hannah Elric showed the abysmal state of diversity in publishing in the U.S. In the industry overall, they found that 79% of people were white Caucasian, 78 were cisgendered female, with less than 1% trans people, 88% were heterosexual, and 92% were non-disabled. And it's even worse in the editorial departments, where they actually pick what books get published. So what has changed since then, and why is this so important? I wanted to get some expert opinions. The first person I talked with was Dr. Lawrence Roth, who's the founder of the publishing and editing program here at Susquehanna, and co-chair of the Department of English and Creative Writing. He brought up some similar studies to the ones I just mentioned, and what our next steps might be. In Franco Moretti's Stanford Lit Lab, they actually do a study and they ask about what constitutes the 20th century canon and they put it together in a way that they thought was best able to capture some of the market information. So they had publishers weekly and bestseller lists, but also the post-colonial associations list of great books from the 20th century. And though you had that kind of amazing diversity, it's incredible that really when you look at the data literally in pie charts, 
we see the exact same thing we knew we were going to see. Which isn't to say that doing that kind of digital distant reading isn't valuable, but that it really puts into stark relief the fact that even when you factor in readers like the Post-Colonial Studies Association, we're still seeing the same kinds of numbers that you just quoted. Does that mean we're going back to square one? I don't think so. I think that the great thing about Stanford Lit Lab, the great thing about the numbers you just cited, and the fact that people know those, is that we kind of have to hammer that information home. We think we're changing. Look, it's not changing. We think we're changing. Look, it's not changing. And hopefully that will at least get through at some point. But I think it's going to continue to be a battle because if we just have our sights set on New York trade publishing, then we're up against some market forces that are very intractable. Not impossible to move, but really intractable. And we'll count our victories in the singles. While that wasn't exactly the uplifting message I'd hoped for, he's absolutely right. To look a little bit further into the big houses that Dr. Ross spoke of, I called Jessica Dartnell, an SU alum, who works in the sales department at a publishing house in New York. The first question I asked her was about diversity in publishing. I think um, in the past few years, things have gotten a lot better where, you know, you're seeing more diverse books on the shelves and the bookstores. You're hearing about more authors who are coming from all these different backgrounds and different cultures. Um, but I think it's also easy for me to say, living in a big city like New York, that um, these are so prevalent in the stores and now in the public eye, whereas, you know, if you go to a smaller town, it might not be the case where these books are front and center or even making it into the stores at all. And I do think as well that diverse books may not always be getting the marketing and publicity muscle behind them to support the sales. But I think we could definitely be supporting more diverse books with those, you know, running articles about them and doing more events and stores with these authors. Um, but I, I do think that there is a demand for it, but I definitely think we could be doing better. We could always be doing better, getting more diverse books from a wider range of cultures and backgrounds and making sure that, you know, they're falling into not just like the hands of people who are seeking that because they want to be reflected in the stories that they read, but people who aren't necessarily seeking that or even knowing that these, you know, these titles exist. Jessica has been in publishing for more than a year now, so I asked her what her favorite part about working in the industry was and why she chose to devote her life to stories. Coming from a small town where, you know, you kind of get picked on in school if you like to read because it's nerdy or whatever. It's been so cool to be surrounded by people that are also, you know, so like passionate about reading, about literature. Finally, I talked to the friend of mine to get an idea of how literary magazines look at diversity. My name is Joshua Mercier and I am currently on staff at the Sanctuary Magazine. I asked him how he saw diversity in big publishers and smaller magazines. I would say that it's something that's getting better with time, but it's still not at the place that it needs to be. Um, I mean, we're seeing a lot more LGBT fiction and fiction with more characters of color, more disabled characters, etc. Um, but it's still very much like books about gay characters are still gay books. Um, and they're almost always YA novels or they're raunchy adult novels, and those are the only two perspectives that we're consistently getting. Um, and I do think it's extremely important to have young adult novels for gay and trans teenagers who are figuring themselves out. Um, I think it's really a time in your life when you need those kinds of books, but I think that that's not the only demographic that needs them. 
particularly in terms of what we're seeing published, I would imagine that it's also reflected in people who are working in the industry. Um, from what I understand, the industry itself is still not really diverse enough to support the kind of diversity we're looking for. I wanted to know if you knew how to get that diversity and how they were handling it at the sanctuary. Um, the sanctuary is a very heavily, especially LGBT panel of people who are curating the content for the sanctuary. So what that ends up meaning is that a lot of LGBT creators are being, you know, accepted and published um, because the people reading the content are better able to sympathize and, and empathize with the content they submitted, especially with LGBT creators. That's definitely one of several reasons that there need to be more marginalized creators in the publishing industry itself, because you're just going to see more of that kind of content when you have people in charge who are able to empathize with that. So what does all this mean for the publishing in the future? Hopefully it's positive. Just the fact that we're having these conversations and then going into the industry to change things is going to have an impact on the way publishing works in the future. We want to live in a world where everyone has stories that they can connect with and stories that change them. Before I let them go, I asked each interviewee if they had read any good diverse books lately. So I'm also reading uh, The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study by Stefano Harney and Fred Moten. And I really, really like the way that this book is both written colloquially and scholarly at the same time. And I thought it was just a really brilliant intervention into network theorizing. And I don't know anyone else that's talking about that book right now. Um, actually, over the summer, I bought Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe. Um, so I'm actually over like a year late to this party. Um, I think everyone who read that book read it a really long time ago. Um, but I tore through it in like two days, I think, um, because I just, it had been so long since I felt so connected to a book. I cried like four times reading it. Um, and it was one of those things that kind of reminded me why we fight so hard for representation in the first place and, and why it does matter so much. Um, so Aristotle and Dante is about two 16-year-old boys. Both, I think, are indigenous Mexican. Um, and obviously, you know, I couldn't relate to every single experience they had, but there were a lot of things like the dynamic they had with their parents, the dynamic they had with the people around them. They're kind of very you know, contrasting yin and yang type personalities um, and, you know, that being what made them so compatible as people. Um, and it was really special to read and it felt really real and sincere and you don't always get that kind of depth with gay fiction. And, and this was one of the first books that I really felt a connection to in a long time. Recently, um, I read There There by Tommy Orange, which, you know, that one did have a lot of marketing and publicity behind it. Um, I was reading about it on, you know, Shuffle Awareness, Publishers Weekly, and um, definitely, you know, it was at the front of, you know, people's minds, I think, when it was published. So that one I, I did check out. And then I also read Pachinko recently by Min Jin Lee. Both of these books are really good, but I tend to also try not to just read bestsellers. Um, I think sometimes diverse authors and these stories are coming from independent houses and not necessarily making it onto these lists. I recently read Only Drunks and Children Tell the Truth, which is a Native American play. It's so good. Um, I actually reread it because it was something that we had studied in my freshman year theater class. Don't, don't always look on the best-selling lists for what, you're, what you want to read. There's definitely so many diverse authors that are coming from 
other other houses that aren't getting the attention that they should. In the small town of Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, nestled between a hair salon and a private residence, sits DJ Ernst Books. Advertising the sale of both used and rare books, DJ Ernst Books was established in 1975. The owner of the store, Donald J. Ernst, also known as Homer, keeps flexible hours. Closing the store every Sunday and Wednesday and opening from around 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every other day. Usually. You should probably call ahead. But what makes DJ Ernst special? How is this bookstore different? Well, besides the original organization system and the perennial presence of the store, Homer himself is known to the residents of the town and the nearby university for his unique personality and unusual stories. Join us as we take a trip to DJ Ernst. Who knows what we'll learn? Ayla, we'll just run through the questions. Yep. Talk for as, as short or as long a time as you want. Uh, Ayla. Ayla. Uh, okay. Yeah. Did your parents read Clan of the Cave Bear? That's where my name is okay. from, yeah. I'm 21, and Homer's the first person I've ever met who knows where my name comes from. When I got over the surprise, I started off with a simple question. What are your favorite stories or books? <clears throat> well, there are a lot, but um, I have one answer to that, which is Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Whatever I'm reading seems to be really good, you know. Uh, but I keep going back to Cannery Row. From there, we moved on to what types of books Homer chooses to sell and how a former Susquehanna University professor helped to influence Homer's taste in literature. I feel like I'm giving somebody value for their money. You know, if, if, they, you know, if I talk them into buying a, a good book. Tom Bailey started, as I said, year, or minutes ago or hours ago. I could, I'm really babbling here. He came in and bought a, an Andre de Boost book and slapped it down on the counter, paid a dollar for it, and he gave it to me. He bought it from me, paid me, and he said, here, it's yours, read it. So he started turning me on to who was hot, you know. And, and then he started bringing his classes in here. And I noticed what he was pushing, you know. Uh, Annie Dillard was one that he really liked. So I started buying all the Annie Dillard books I could. And, you know, everything that he was pushing, like... Uh, the Perfect Storm, he was selling that over and over. And he's always selling Seabiscuit. You know, he's, that's a good one, you know. And he even, and then he, he, over the years, made lists, like, for uh, reading over the summer or whatever, for, for this particular course. And stuff as weird as Charlotte's Web, you know. So I started buying all the copies I could of Charlotte's Web. But now he's not there anymore. So mm -hmm. Annie Dillard isn't selling very well anymore. Uh, I have Faulkner that's kind of languishing, but uh, I, I'm still, you know, I still buy that kind of stuff. James Joyce, I think, is really good. Personally, I push Joseph Campbell and the Lauren Isley that I described to you. He's phenomenal, Lauren Isley. Essays. Barbara Kingsolver writes some somewhat similar to Lauren Isley essays. Again, she's a scientist writer. Mm -hmm. As I get older, I'm... I'm more aware than ever, even though I hit that tree at about 
40 miles an hour and survived, I'm more than ever aware of mortality and that this collection of chemicals that's inside my skin is not going to last forever, is not going to be me. I don't believe that, you know, I'm going to go to Elysian fields and be me. <laughs> I, I'm reading more and more stuff about small particle physics and the physics of consciousness and stuff like that and Buddhism. and So I'm stocking Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, along with physics and books that talk about science and philosophy and that sort of thing, um, as well as C.S. Lewis. And the, the stuff I don't stock is books that try to persuade you to believe in, say, the resurrection, you know, that sort of thing, and Jesus and, you know, uh, evangelical-type books. I'm mm -hmm. interested in history of religion and philosophy itself and scholarly approaches to religion and philosophy. I've never been more interested in maintaining that section of my shop than I am now as I approach the later years of my life. And I like to say that almost every good book in this store, including even the serious history books, are all to some extent about the same thing. But especially the the literature and poetry, which I don't read it. I admit I don't read a lot of poetry. Um, they're all barking up the same tree. They're all trying to figure out what is this experience that we perceive through our brains while we're alive. I was going to say our eyes, but like Helen Keller didn't have eyes. You know, through our whatever senses we have available to mm -hmm. us. And, and that, that just, that's got me kind of fired up. Whereas 30 years ago, that was the last thing on my mind, really. I, I didn't even care. I just thought it was all pretty simple. I just thought I was a collection of chemicals that existed for a short time, then was gone. But now I'm beginning to wonder if there's something, some spark that... I am in, everybody is infused with that existed before and exists after. Uh, you know, I just feel that all these books, all these great works in here are trying to figure out what they're, like they're, 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 they're aiming toward describing important moments in people's lives that that result in a sort of like a like when your phone goes ding and somebody sends you a message like a crystal clear revelation of at least some little small part of the truth which when I was your age you know they were always talking about truth in school and I thought well yeah I, I write in my essays you know I was really good at essays uh, I had a great teacher in high school for writing I mean, she was the best. She burned out and quit. She makes jewelry now. But uh, I was always writing what I thought people wanted to hear. And so I used that word a lot. Truth and beauty. Truth is beauty. Beauty is truth. 
I didn't have a clue what it really meant. Now I think I have more of a clue because I have years behind me. That's a lot of pages I've read too, but I've also, I've, I've seen people born and die and, you know, I've lost people close to me. I've just seen a lot more. This episode of Me, Us, You is brought to you by DJ Ernst Bookstore. Placed close to the heart of Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania on Market Street, DJ Ernst has a wide variety of used and rare books of exceptional quality. Frequently claimed to have one of the best curated selections of books of fiction, mythology, philosophy, and history, starting with prices as low as 50 cents, there is something for everyone at DJ Ernst. Open daily from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., closed Wednesdays and Sundays. The most exciting time to be alive when I was little was Christmas. Family was great, and the food was fantastic, but the greatest gift of all was the actual gift. I swear, I'm not shallow or materialistic, it's just that every Christmas, pretty much without fail, I asked for a new video game. Something I had seen online or that had been suggested to me by my friends at school. I would run downstairs to find my new pair of pajamas for the year and a few little book-sized presents, all of them stories video games. I haven't played it in years, but I can still remember the ending of Bioshock. They offered you this city. And you refused it. And what did you do instead? What I've come to expect of you. You saved them. You gave them the one thing that was stolen from them. A chance. A chance to learn. To find love. To live. And since the end, what was your reward? You You never said. But But I think I think I I know. It's a beautiful game, with an engaging story arc, and my connection to that story is what made me a writer. I wanted to put words on a page as powerful as the ones I read and listened to in video game story arcs. The ideals of proper leadership stick with me as well, especially this quote here from Assassin's Creed. The world is a tapestry of many colors and patterns. A just leader would celebrate this not seek to unravel it. He fears the disorder that comes from difference. That is why we make laws to live by, a canon that applies to all in equal measure. These games are beautiful pieces of art, and my heart yearns to learn more of their stories, just as others yearn for the next piece of a book collection. I follow the work of Rockstar Games like many follow the work of Random Penguin House. Based on my research, I believe many others out there feel similarly but we'll get back to that later. Despite all my love and nostalgia for the world of gaming and the narratives that live within them, there's some reason to believe that narrative gaming is in danger. 
On September 21, 2018, around 250 employees entered a large conference room at Telltale Games and were told they had 30 minutes to pick up and leave. They were given their final paychecks and encouraged to apply for unemployment before the end of the day. The company went from an extensive collection of talented people to just the 25 required to finish up final projects. The rest of their employees left jobless and confused. Those 25 will inevitably join them, biding out their time on a sinking ship. Telltale Games was a video game developer in San Rafael, California, which gained a lot of traction as a major game developer in 2012 when it won the VGX abbreviation for Vector Graphics Award for Game of the Year for The Walking Dead and Studio of the Year. Both big wins, which put Telltale Games on the gaming industry's radar as a developer to be taken seriously. Those awards didn't help them much when it came time to pay the bills, and a major funder pulled out, leaving Telltale with no option but to begin the process of closing its doors. They were a well-known game developer, making one of the best narrative gaming experiences in their Walking Dead episodes. Yet with a flash, they're gone. Like many other gaming companies before them, leaving gamers to ask how a company succeeding so heavily could come to such an untimely end, when heavily narrative games seem to be the future of the medium. Stand in the ashes of a trillion dead souls and ask the ghosts if honor matters. This silence is your answer. That transition is an audio clip of Javik from Mass Effect, the last of a Promethean race destroyed by war. Narrative has become an increasingly important part of any gaming experience, as technology has advanced within the industry. In fact, while many games such as Space Invaders, Tetris, and Mario remain the most profitable games of all time, at least half of all games found on the most profitable list of 2017 are narrative in nature, just a few of these titles being Grand Theft Auto V, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, Resident Evil 7, and Mass Effect Andromeda. We're buying into this type of storytelling, so why are these companies failing? After some research, I found that the answer isn't quite as cut and dry as I was expecting it to be. To understand, I wanted to figure out why people play games in the first place. I found a study reported on in 2011, originally published in Psychological Science, that did just that. Their conclusion isn't all that surprising. Dr. Andy Perzybiski explains, A game can be more fun when you get the chance to act and be like your ideal self. The attraction to playing video games is that it gives people the chance to think about a role they would ideally like to take. So we play games because they allow us to daydream, to trial life. Dr. Perzybiski also slightly discusses escapism, but he doesn't demonize it the way some have in the past. He says, I was heartened by the findings which showed that people were not running away from themselves, but running towards their ideals. They are not escaping to nowhere, they are escaping to somewhere. So we use games to understand who we want to be, what we ideally look like. I thought it important to check a few other places as well. I found a blog about addiction that listed 10 other reasons that people play besides addiction. The list was entertainment, challenge, boredom, connectedness, emotional satisfaction, alternative to bad behaviors, escapism, practice for life skills, stress relief, and help in making friends. Take any one of these with a grain of salt, and I'm sure there are plenty of people with answers that don't fit nicely in a box, but it's a start. A few other sources and testimonies backed up most of these ideas. 
We play to be entertained, engaged, challenged, connected to larger communities, and to learn and escape from life not all that different from other forms of media, really. You can't break a man the way you break a dog or a horse. The harder you beat a man, the taller he stands. That audio log comes from the Jackal character from Far Cry 2, a major arms dealer responsible for supplying both sides of over 15 wars in Africa. We know why people play video games in general. What about narrative specifically? I found an online survey promoted by Polygon, a rather well-established games and entertainment website. After what feels like a never-ending set of questions, the survey shows a percentage of how much I care about a certain part of gaming as compared to the average gamer. This quiz told me a lot in terms of what I care about compared to the entirety of other people who have taken the test. The different segments of gaming are accomplishment, sensory, routine, emotional, rules, social, and content. For the sake of this subject, I am most interested in content and emotional, as they make up together what I would define as narrative. My emotional care score was 55%, and my content 66%, meaning that out of 100, that is how much I care about those concepts. All around, these were the highest percentage scores I had. This in and of itself isn't that groundbreaking, but when I look at the percentages compared to world, things get a bit more interesting. I'll save you the math I had to do to get these percentages and just give the numbers. 45% of people care more than me about emotion and 34% more about content meaning approximately 40% of gamers, the average of the content and emotional values, care more about narrative than the man reading this script on narrative. I would call that significant. The point? Narrative in gaming does matter. Gamers say so. A man chooses. A slave obeys. That audio log is spoken by the character Andrew Ryan in Bioshock, the creator of the underwater city you just helped his also evil enemy Frank Fontaine destroy. So back to the question. If narrative in games is cared about as much as it is, and gamers care about video games, then why would a company so invested in story go bankrupt and die overnight? This answer is simple. Game development is a volatile industry. Tom Crago, chief executive officer of Tantalus Media, formerly Tantalus Interactive, has said, In an industry as volatile as video games, it's impossible to put your hand on your heart and say to any of your developers that their job is going to be secure for the next five to ten years. I feel like anyone who does that is kidding themselves. Harsh words, but not untrue. And Tantalus Media is still around today meaning that the mindset and actions Crago has taken to be transparent with his staff about the financial stability of the company is working. This has been understood for years. Game development is volatile. Things either work, or they don't, and when they don't, companies tend to go under. The margin for error in game development is thin. With a lot of profit from one title being invested into the next and lost forever if that next game doesn't make a good return leaving little to put into another game following and even less left for paychecks. Perhaps this means that the way we look at profits in the gaming industry is flawed, and the way we as consumers interact with games is as well. Julie Muncy, a writer at Wired, seems to think so. In one of her articles, she states, 
Games are made by people, and if we care about games at all, we need to care about the people who make them. In fact, I think we need to care about the people a lot more than we care about the games. Maybe she's right. Right now, ask anyone what their favorite video game is. The answer will come to them much quicker than if you ask them their favorite game developer. This is a problem. Because not caring about the developers means we are willing to let them flop over a bad game, and with that hit comes the end of every good game that company has made. There's a reason that other volatile industries like online content such as YouTube creators have found ways other than advertisement, originally their main source of income, to support themselves. They have a following that cares about the creator, not just the content, so they support not just by watching and liking, but by supporting Patreon accounts and buying merchandise, and sitting through some sponsors, which bolsters income through varied sources when a handful of videos don't do well. Gaming might need to do the same, and we as consumers support them in doing it. Instead of just buying the games when they're good, maybe we all put forth a certain amount of money per month for a developer we believe in. We give them what they need to keep the lights on and their workers paid, even when a game flounders upon release. Then, a company like Telltale wouldn't be left penniless after a single failure. They can pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and promise to do better next time. And if they do better next time, we can all know that we helped create that by remembering that beautiful stories and wonder-filled narratives are still a business, and will die if we don't support them. I mentioned this at the beginning, but I think it's worth mentioning again, that video games are stories, like any other form and they are capable of touching people in just the same way. For many, video games are the only stories that ever will change them, and I think there is something beautiful about that. If it weren't for video games, I wouldn't be a writer. I wouldn't be recording this podcast. Maybe I wouldn't have even gone to college, and my roommate wouldn't have his dream to write for video games someday. For so many, this form of storytelling matters more than anything else, and I personally can't wait to see where it goes from here. I'd like to end with the end of Bendy and the Ink Machine, Joey Drew's monologue. I don't know that I can explain here what is so great about this ending monologue, but to give as brief an overview as I can, this is the monologue of a man who has lost everything he worked hard for to his own obsession with it. SU, we spend most of our time on a small liberal arts campus in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. The campus can sometimes become a sort of self-selecting, somewhat isolated microcosm from the outside world, especially the one right outside our campus. 
Our campus is more diverse in many ways and less diverse in others. We wanted to see what that looked like in the form of what stories are our favorite. Which books, fairy tales, comics, or any other form of stories have influenced the lives of the people we spend time with. I'm very curious to see how much overlap there will be, what sort of media people will come up with when we say story, and how many times we get Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey. We also want to know what our campus thinks as a whole about the idea of a story and what constitutes one. Let's get out on campus and see what stories we can find. We asked students what their favorite story was and why. Here are some of their answers. My favorite book or just like? My favorite story. Give me a second to think. <laughs> so it's any kind of a story. I'm not ready. Um. Oh no! <laughs> so what is the question? Like what is your favorite story? So my favorite story. Oh. Like just for like books and stuff? I'm sorry. I don't know. There was some indecision. But eventually we began to get some real answers. I'd have to say one of my favorite stories is Dos Palabras by Isabel Allende. It was my introduction to magical realism, and I had read it in Spanish, completely in Spanish, and I was like, this is the one thing I can at least gather some meaning behind. Um, I just thought it was fun. It's like it didn't, it wasn't like one of those big books that the regular English teachers were like handing out. It's just a story, and it was like, kind of my introduction to an interesting short story so i guess that that would be my favorite Tracy jackson for the win i think probably um any story that has like magic in it with strong women and really fun animal sidekicks wrapped by jennifer ray bradbury well i guess my favorite story uh it's not like a favorite favorite as in I like it the most like most favorite stories but it's like very important to me because it's uh the first book I was ever able to read on my own uh and it, it was called Hannah which is also my name so it definitely plays into it but it was about this um this blind girl who was going to school for the first time and learning how to read and be able to interact with uh, people which uh kind of also kind of spoke to me because like I'm not blind but I'm dyslexic so learning to read for me was a struggle as well so it kind of really resonated with me. Uh, Princess Bride I guess. Uh, my favorite story is one I read in middle school and I can't recall the name of it but essentially it was about a man who had dissociative identity disorder and he kidnapped a woman and so it explains her entire story of being locked up in his basement and then being finally set free and it kind of goes through like the court case as well as what it was like and the experience so that was kind of I gotta go with the, the Rangers Apprentice series my favorite story as of now is the story of Flint the play Flint and it's about the Flint water crisis in Flint Michigan and the reason it's my favorite story right now is because it tells I'm going to say story again. It tells people's stories authentically because it's the words of actual people living in the circumstance and it describes their emotion and their journey through a certain crisis. And yeah, I believe that this story is impactful because it shows an emotional side to something that most people would just see the, the words or the headlines on a news channel, but it shows the impact on real people. Yeah, that's why it's my favorite story right now. J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. 
My favorite story is a story by John Gold um, called Feelers. It's about a man who leaves his life behind to have this affair with a woman that also left her behind, life behind. They both leave work to essentially have sex over this like t like two week long vacation, and they develop like a really good relationship. He he's like an English teacher, so he's really good at like syntax and semantics. So they talk a lot about grammar, and in the end, she ends up leaving him after she discovers that she's pregnant, and she asks him if he knows what parthrogenesis is, which is the idea of virgin births, and I'm just obsessed with that idea. So that was my favorite story. Grimm's Fairy Tales. So I don't really have a specific favorite story, but I do like like a certain kind of story where it's like... Um, it focuses on the emotional connections between the characters and not while they are dealing with it, like a cat maybe catastrophic event, whether it's to a large catastrophic event or just catastrophic to that character. So I like seeing like platonic and romantic relationships written well. They have to be written well, otherwise it sucks. The never ending story is one of my favorite books of all time. When we first decided on this question, I was thinking that we would get a lot of Harry Potter or To Kill a Mockingbird, which was recently voted America's favorite book. I also figured we'd get mostly book titles. Instead, we got a really wide range of stories for a wide range of reasons, from strong female characters to a particular interest in parthenogenesis. We also got a few different definitions of story, from book to play to movie to a kind of arc that you really like. Our definitions of story, and the ones we consider our favorites, are just as diverse and interesting as we are. We've all heard the stories of Greek myths. The tragic romances, melodramatic gods, and valiant heroes have filled the stories we've all experienced, in some way, shape, or form. One of the most well-known stories is that of the Iliad. Whether you've read it in its original Greek, suffered through the translated epic in a high school English class, or only seen the rather whitewashed theatrical version we know as Troy, chances are you're familiar with Paris, Helen, Achilles, and a certain wooden horse that helped the Greeks win the war. In her New York Times best-selling novel, The Song of Achilles, Madeline Miller recounts the events of the Iliad from the perspective of Patroclus, Achilles' closest companion. However, where the previous adaptations of the myth have often whitewashed the characters and neglected to acknowledge the romantic relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, Miller wrote her novel with the intent of portraying the diversity showcased within the Iliad, while still remaining true to Homer's original telling. Her second novel, Circe, continues this trend, focusing on the often overlooked minor goddess who appears in Homer's Odyssey. I spoke with Madeline Miller over Skype to see if I could figure out why Greek mythology has impacted her the way it has, and how her life has influenced her writing. I started off by asking Madeline Miller what her favorite story was. There were so many. Um, I, it's hard to pick just one. Um, absolutely, the Greek myths, the Iliad and the Odyssey, my mother used to read me little pieces of those as bedtime stories when I was younger. So they were very formative. Um, but also the first book I ever read by myself, my mom was reading to me, it was Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, you know, a children's book. Yeah. And she was reading it to me and we got to sort of two chapters from the ending and she says, okay, 
I'm, we'll stop, we'll read the rest tomorrow. And then she says to me, don't read the rest by yourself. And that was like an epiphany. I didn't even realize I could do that. So <laughs> as soon as my mother goes downstairs, I immediately, you know, get out the flashlight and read the rest of it by myself. The ending is kind of sad. A bunch of the rats die. And so then I go sobbing down to my mother's room <laughs> in the middle of the night, having read it myself. And I feel like an, that experience was actually very formative, is how much a book can move you um, and how wholly wrapped up in the world you can be. And that was the experience of so much of my childhood. There were so many books that I just lived in their world. Um, when I got a little bit older, things like The Handmaid's Tale were completely absorbing, more like high school. Um, I loved Laurie Moore. I reread and reread her books over and over again. Um, the Joy Luck Club, I probably have read a hundred times. I, that was a book I really loved as a child. Um, and ditto for The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. You know, these were just books that they had such full, exciting worlds, so many interesting family dynamics that I, I would just get lost in them. I then asked her where her love of Greek mythology came from. Well, I think it came from those early, you know, readings by my mom. Um, but why it stuck as opposed to, you know, she read me a lot of stuff, but that there's something about it that felt really electric to me as I was hearing it. And I, I have a memory of her reading the first line of the Iliad to me, which goes, sing goddess of the destructive rage of Achilles. And there was something about that that just felt so exciting and overwhelming and adult and interesting and mysterious. So that was all um, part of it. And then I loved that it was a system and you could sort of, I loved to memorize systems as a child. So, you know, there were all the gods and the children and they had these powers and this stuff. So I love that aspect. Um, and we also lived near the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I lived in New York City at the time. And so I'd go and I could see the statues there. And that was a whole other piece of it because I love the art so much. So, From there, we moved on to what inspired Madeline Miller to increase the focus on diversity within her own novels. Well, I mean, I think that is one of the aspects that felt so frustrating to me about the original is how, you know, so many voices are silenced in the service of the traditional male heroic story. Um, you know, we, there are a few female characters, but they get very, very little kind of screen time, as, as it were, um, you know, people of color, it's sort of people of color and the, the um, gay focus or, or the focus of, on a same-sex male relationship is a little bit different because in the ancient world, that was much more of an accepted tradition. Um, Plato interpreted Achilles and Patroclus as lovers and Aeschylus, and, you know, that was just sort of part of of the interpretation history, although not everyone interpreted them that way. But I really wanted to make sure that, um, that that was back in the record. I felt like when I had gone to school, that had pretty much dropped out. And I think there's more attention to it paid nowadays. But a lot of that stuff was very much kind of, you know, not talked about or whispered about or, you know, just kind of erased from the record. Mm -hmm. And so for me, part of the whole point of writing this was was to bring that back in. Um, Briseis, also as a character, um, in the original, she's a princess. I was really not interested in that. There are a lot of aristocrats in this story already. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important for, for me to have her be a farmer's daughter. Because in the Iliad, there's all this focus on sort of what's happening to the kings and the princes and the city and the palace 
and, you know, all of that intrigue. But the reason that the Greeks would have been able to stay for 10 years is because they would have been absolutely destroying all the neighboring farms. That's yeah. where they're getting all their food from. They would have been raiding and destroying and stealing and taking the daughters as slaves. And so all of that, I wanted that to be part of the story that this was affecting these people who had absolutely no stake in the war, no say in the war, no ability to defend themselves and were, you know, complete collateral damage, but their lives are ruined by the war as well. Miller then mentioned one of the more difficult parts of including positive diversity within the Song of Achilles. The only thing that really um, was unfortunate is that Achilles and Patroclus do both spoiler die at the end of the <laughs> at the end of their story and you know I was very aware of that sort of you know the story about gay stories ending in tragedy um but I felt like that was so baked into the myth and you know Odysseus even sees them together in the underworld in the odyssey so you know, there's this real, I didn't feel like I could change that. But within that, I tried to give them the happiest possible ending that I could. <laughs> I mentioned how the intersectionality of the novel was especially impactful on our campus, given the prevalence of the creative writing program and how most students are used to a whitewashed version of the gods. It is. Well, and that's the other thing I want to add, which is that I grew up reading Dallaire's book of Greek myths, which I think a lot of people do. But the gods are so white and blonde, um, which is really disturbing because, you know, one of the things that the Nazis did is they claimed all that Greek literature and, you know, they were sort of like, we are the inheritors of the Greeks. Um, and so there was this like weird transformation of the ancient Greeks into these blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, Aryan beings. Um, so that's one of my, so I, I really wanted to push against that. Um, now, in the original Iliad, Achilles is described as xanthus, which means like light haired. We don't know how blonde that blonde was. Um, you know, does it mean I don't think it means like California, <laughs> you know, <laughs> platinum blonde. Um, probably it was more like light brown. But, you know, so we have a few color hints. But basically, you know, the Greeks did not look like the Germans in 1950. Um, and I think it's really important to to remember that and to, you know, take out that weird racism that has gotten layered over it. Yeah. After that, we made the jump to Miller's second novel, Circe. Circe has been heralded as a feminist novel, and I asked if that was something Miller set out to do, and if the praise from her first two books was impacting her feelings about writing her next novel. I absolutely wanted to be a feminist book from the beginning. That was completely part of the project. I was so frustrated by the scene in the Iliad, um, sorry, in the Odyssey, where they meet and Circe is this powerful, exciting figure. She's turns men into pigs. She has tame lions and wolves. And then Odysseus pulls his sword on her and like, that's it. She screams and she kneels before him and begs for mercy. And it's just like, oh, it just feels, it's one of those moments where as, you know, a woman reading the story, you just feel so shut out. It feels like here's this female character who has to be completely subsumed to the male story. She has to serve the, the man's story. And, you know, it doesn't matter how interesting she is, she has to be forced down into her place <laughs> so that she can then serve the heroic narrative. Um, and so I really wanted to say, okay, let's take away that heroic layer, you know, all that stuff that has been put on top of that 
How would Circe feel about that moment? How would it look like if, if she didn't have to serve Odysseus's story? You know, if we take this as Odysseus's version of the story and, you know, we try and imagine her, her voice. And I also wanted to um, make her story have all this stuff about it. It has nothing to do with Odysseus. You know, she's a cameo in the Odyssey. She's only in two plus books of the Odyssey. And so I very deliberately only put Odysseus in two plus chapters of the novel because um, I really wanted it to be about her life, you know, from beginning to sort of where the story leaves her. Um, and there's most of that has nothing to do with Odysseus. And, you know, she ends up having all these adventures and all this exciting stuff that um, is wholly her own. And I also wanted to give her an epic scope. You know, I think that women have traditionally, as I mentioned, been shut out of epic. You know, that the epic stories were, for the most part, composed by men, as far as we know. I mean, Homer, question mark, was there even a Homer? But, you know, um, and about male protagonists. And so putting Circe at the center of her own story and giving her, you know, that sort of gods and monsters and destiny and finding her own way and making mistakes and being incredibly courageous, all the things that male heroes get to do in Epic. I wanted her also to have that same scope. So, um, and in terms of how it makes me think, I mean, these things are, I love it that people have seen that in the book because it was so important to me to put it in. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I think there is some of that um, also in Song of Achilles, although because Patroclus is the narrator, and he is male, he sort of, he, he has windows into the female experience, but he, and he is much more understanding of it than most of the men in his sphere. But, um, you know, but I could really go deeper with Circe and, and do a lot more with that. And so, I mean, I, I want to keep telling these stories of people who have been silenced and perspectives that have been silenced. And, and, you know, it's, it's really exciting to me that, that people are excited about that. Madeline Miller spent 10 years writing the Song of Achilles, and seven writing Circe. I asked her how spending such a long period of time on the same piece affects her. Mm. I mean, I think I spend a lot of time really living in the characters' heads, or maybe they're living in my head, I don't know, it gets a little, <laughs> it gets a little blurry. But I, I really approach my writing kind of like an actor getting into character. I have to really be able to hear the character's voice, and so... Part of the time it took me to write Circe was to kind of write Patroclus out, who I'd been living with for so long, and then find Circe's voice. And so I'm sure there will be an adjustment period, too, where I'm, I'm sort of saying goodbye to Circe as I begin to find the voices of my, of my new characters. Um, and because I like to write about characters who've been silenced or whose stories haven't been focused on, I like to work from first person narrators because then I'm literally giving them voice. <laughs> and so that feels, you know, that feels important. Um, I think, I think one of the things that I find most important about writing and reading is empathy that I think reading and writing gives you empathy and empathy is one of the greatest gifts that humanity has. It's our ability to look at someone else and see ourselves in them and see them in us and, you know, reach out to them and, and hopefully if we see them suffering, help them. Um, and so living in another character's 
world and kind of experiencing things through their eyes is just, it's a very powerful experience. It, it sort of teaches you that empathy, hopefully. Um, and then, you know, as a reader, hopefully then my readers get to experience that world as well. So I, I can't quite put my finger on all the ways that those characters have changed me, but um, I certainly feel like they have. I feel like I've sort of walked, I've walked with them <laughs> through their, through their life. And so, you know, sometimes I, I think about, you know, in moments where Cersei would be braver than I might be. Uh, I think, come on, I, I can do this. I can, I've imagined myself into the shoes of a character who's braver than I am in this particular moment. <laughs> Finally, I close the interview by asking Madeline Miller how Greek mythology influenced her life. Um, well, I'm naturally very worried about hubris. So <laughs> the idea of, you know, uh, be careful what you say, what you wish for. But I think that actually might be a negative influence <laughs> that, you know, that uh, it made me very worried about, for instance, writing the song of Achilles in the first place, that it sort of felt like in my Icarus putting on my on my wax wings, flying too close to the sun. Um, I was very afraid to tell anyone that I was working on the book when I was working on it. I didn't tell any of my professors or any of my peers. So, um, So in that sense, I think, if I if I had it to do over, I would go back and tell myself, don't worry so much about that. <laughs> don't worry so much about hubris. No lightning is going to. But I, I also think that it influenced me because I, I have always felt that mythology, I've always been very inspired by mythology because mythology is so universal in the sense that wherever humans come from, we tell stories about ourselves. And so even though there are all these fantastical elements in mythology, they're incredibly human. You know, they're all about human desires and hopes and grief and loss. They're sort of us processing our lives um, in fantastical form. And I love that there are, um, I love that they really do belong to everybody. You know, that the Iliad and the Odyssey are seen as these very elite texts now. But they came out of oral tradition. You know, they came out of grandparents telling their grandchildren these stories and bards telling these stories and this very living, growing tradition. And so um, that's very inspiring that, you know, no one owns these stories. They sort of they belong to all of us. Stories are numerous, and because of that, we found it difficult to talk in depth about any given one. Instead, we looked in many ways at the concept of stories, why we tell them, and what they mean to us. In their truest form, stories are our way of preserving our humanity, of having something of ourselves to leave the world when we are gone. As Sir Terry Pratchett has said, a man is not dead while his name is still spoken. We believe that this is why we create stories and why we read them. We encourage you to think with us about how stories affect our lives and what stories have changed you. Resource used in my narrative gaming segment come from thenextweb.com, CNBC, Goliath, Irish Health, addictionblog.org, and MCVUK. My TV static effect comes from soundj.com. The songs used in this episode were February and Idea by Kai Engel, Teamwork by Scott Holmes, Pinboy Pocket from DLSounds.com, 
La Voyage Libre by Martine de Boer, and Greek Tragedy by Plus Plus. We'd also like to thank all of our interviewees, especially Jessica Dartnell, DJ Homer Ernst, Joshua Mercier, Madeline Miller, and Dr. Lawrence Roth. This has been me. Us. You. 